I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... The reason why it's so heavily regulated is because it's people's lives. The financial system is people's money. So yeah, it's going to be difficult now. What fintech broadly defined seeks to do is make it better. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. What's Working in Washington? I'm your host, Mark Walsh. Today, an old friend, Javier Sade, joins us. Javier and I go way back. Javier is now managing partner at Impact Master Holdings and a partner at Fenway Summer venture fund right here in Bethesda, Maryland. We talk about all sorts of stuff, including SPACs, FinTech, guess what? The way you use your credit card, that's going to change. And also the role of the federal government here in Washington, D.C., and how it's kind of really only part of what the story of what it means to be a Washingtonian is all about. Here's our conversation. Javier, great to have you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So let's go back in time. Uh, 20 years ago, you and I were involved in a media investment and venture called Air America. Let's go back in the midst of time. But no, seriously, that was a fascinating experience of trying to build a media brand. I don't want to take the words out of your mouth. A media brand was radio-based for an audience that we thought was underserved. Are you still seeing opportunity in the media arena for not only that kind of audience, but underserved audiences in general? Look, when we started that thing, and it was an amazing, you and I have a long, long history on this thing. And when we started that thing, we saw an opportunity in the media and entertainment space. Tech was just starting, right? In terms of distribution, over the air, over the top. In fact, if you remember, Air America was one of the first ever spoken word programs on Apple iTunes. Right. Now, uh, you know, all the stuff that has happened. So, the way media is consumed, the way media is produced, the way the portability, bite size, I mean, I, I don't even want to get into TikTok and all that stuff, but I think there's a ton of opportunity just because of uh, tech's omnipresence in anything that's ones and zeros, and entertainment is ones and zeros. Yeah. Well, you and I remember famously we said that Air America was gonna, was not a radio company with an internet kicker. It was an internet company with radio stations as a promotional vehicle. And I think podcasts have sort of taken that over. I mean, everybody can create their own, own industry and, and, and own audience, which hopefully ours is is massive here on what's working in Washington. Absolutely. But to remind to remind our listeners, Javier and I uh, recruited and hired uh, a young woman named Rachel Maddow. She's gone on to great things, and then a comic who had aspirations for political uh, office called Al Franken. And it just seems, you know, it seems I don't know about you, but every now and then it seems sort of like a gentler time back then. Uh, and the media environment now is so divisive. What have you seen in divisiveness in Washington, D.C.? And we'll get to your career in Washington, D.C., divisiveness as sort of a factor in how people consume facts or maybe information. So rewind the clock 21 years and this month in a few days, right? Um, and we were attacked. And it was probably the last time, sadly, well, it was the hopefully the last time that happens, but the last time, sadly, that we came together around one thing, despite far right, far left, middle right, whatever you want to call it, there was a call to action. There was a a specific enemy. There was no question around, you know, uh, blue states, red states. It was, you know, the red, white, and blue states. The media business is about selling 
things. If it's eyeballs, if it's ears, and all these things. And what sells, as we have seen since then, and I think uh, Roger Rails was the first shot across the bow, uh, in identifying a business opportunity, regardless of his political affiliations, he was brilliant mm -hmm. in the way that he saw an opportunity yep. to coalesce and compile eyeballs to which advertisers would sell. Um, and there has been a few tries uh, since on something left of center, but if you look at the media landscape now, uh, and this is very concerning to me and to any person with half a, half a brain, is that there's, it's really hard to discern truth. Uh, the speed of technology, what people share. Um, I just heard a statistic, TikTok, which is it's a tech company, but it's really a media company where people are sharing videos and all these things. Something like like 90% of kids under 15 spend at least an hour a day on TikTok. Mm. That blows your mind, right? And And in places like, and I'm not singling out TikTok, I mean the social media overall, uh, is a place where people with affinity want to be in echo chambers that validate their thinking as opposed mm -hmm. to when you were in school and you were doing a debate, you actually wanted to listen and hear and discern. And, you know, my mind as well as yours, Mark, has been changed many times over mm -hmm. when there's a smart debate. But um, I think, I don't know how we get out of it, this polarization um, that then gets translated into what, the party, the two parties are doing, uh, who they cater to, and so on and so forth. So I was just on a panel with, uh, quote, young people, unquote, sort of 20 to 27. They were discussing news and their consumption of news. And to your point, they all said their main source of news is TikTok. And I literally had never processed that. I don't, how do you get news on TikTok? Well, they follow people that are influencers that they think are a source of legitimate data. Dude, where does this go? Like, what, what's your prediction? Yeah, how does this I how mean, does this resolve? I mean, look, uh, when Zuckerberg, what is he? When Zuckerberg started Facebook, yeah, uh, basically because he wanted to date, yeah. Um, little did he know that his thing was gonna do what it has done. Yeah, you know, with billions of people, it's the biggest nation on earth. If you look at it as a yep. as a sovereign, um, and. You know, that is like V1 of social media. I mean, now he's trying to take into the metaverse and all this stuff, but um, the speed, the algorithms, TikTok is, it's it's concerning from a national security standpoint. I don't Agreed. even want to get into that because Chinese yeah. and, and all the data they know about people and all this stuff, but... Um, Wait a minute, they're tracking us? Come on, you're kidding. Uh, supposedly, that's what they're saying. And I think, <laughs> I think both sides of the aisle are in agreement that uh, China... Um, yeah, second largest economy in the world and also a formidable adversary. We have some issues there and they are owning our youth, you know, and and this, I don't know where it goes. I actually don't have answers and I hope that the way we get to an answer, if it's a policy debate or a regulatory debate or how those eyeballs are monetized or uh, and, and, and ear drums are monetized, um, don't harm our social fabric further. Yeah. I think it's, uh, it's tough out there. Well, you and I also have another tremendous link. You preceded me as the executive at the Small Business Administration, running the Office of Investment and Innovation. You were kind enough to recommend me as your successor, uh, which I was able to somehow fool people into thinking that I could handle the job. I don't know. I'd love your perspective. I thought it was one of the most absolutely motivational gigs I've ever had 
because I had no idea the federal government did this. In fact, you schooled me on what the whole arena was and how important that public-private partnership was. Have you maintained your enthusiasm for the government as a force for good in public-private partnerships, or have have there been some ways that it's been amended to you? Hmm. <laughs> um, there are spots in the federal government where things work beautifully. Yeah. This happen. I'm, I'm biased. We are biased. Uh, this happens to be one of them. Yep. Uh, most of the, I'm not going to say most of the fund managers, but the fund, the people which, well, to explain what it is. Yeah. Um, it's programs that either capitalize, lend to, or grant money to small businesses in America. They've been going for about 60 years. Um, tens and tens of billions of dollars. I think since inception, $130 billion. And some of the companies that have gotten money from this program include Amazon. I mean, so, sorry, uh, Whole Foods, which is now part of Amazon, Tesla, Amgen. I mean, literally, it's Apple. Apple, thank you. Sun Microsystems, FedEx, Costco. The list go on, goes on and on. Um, and the reason they got that money was because they were small businesses at one point. Right. And venture capital and private equity back then. Now it's trillions of dollars. Uh, back then, um, was very hard to come by. Risk capital to start and capitalize business is very difficult. If you fast forward to today, um, the program is essentially run as a uh, debt level uh, money on funds, basically giving small funds in America, which invest in small businesses in America, more capital to invest in small businesses, which in turn creates jobs, which in turn creates tax revenue. And oh, by the way, this is capitalism. So they gotta, the funds got to make money. Yeah. So it's, it's actually one of the best examples well, uh, of this. As somebody famously said, maybe you, maybe somebody else, using the greed of Wall Street and the public-private partnership access to capital the federal government represents to extend, pl- extend money into places and people and industries, they normally wouldn't get it. And I think that's been the greatest summary of what's going on. Billions of dollars helping businesses grow. But to your point, it's a pocket of success, and sometimes we see less so in the, in the, in the federal government. Um, I'm probably going to sound like I'm pontificating here, but you and I saw that program less successful during the prior administration. What was your exposure to it, and what did you see happen there? I think we had a... Um and again, I'm a little biased here, but I think we had a good run uh, in those eight years in which 44 was, yeah. uh, 44, Barack Obama was in power. Um, the program has always worked. It spurts and starts in different ways, but the previous iteration in the program, kind of the one that was between, let's say, mid, the mid-90s and the, and the mid-aughts, um, was a program that actually had a participating security. Yeah. And not to get all technical, but a participating security is essentially a preferred um, equity ownership. claim yeah. of, on equity ownership. And if you remember what was happening in 96, 97, 98, and culminated, you ran yeah. one of the biggest uh, successes of the in, of the first internet boom, Mark, um, it ended up in tears. Yeah. So I don't think it's necessarily a function of the program necessarily being uh, badly run, although I think I was the best ever to ever run that program. Of course. Ha ha. Ha. Um, number one. Uh, number one. Was um, I second? Would you give me number two? Actually, you you could have been number one, one oh, A and one B, something. It. I don't know. Okay. Um, but I think that again, the policy what underpins I think that program's success, and to be clear about scale, if the the age the age the SBA the agency's budget is one billion dollars. Yeah. 
that is 12 hours of the budget of the Department of Defense. Just to put it in perspective, yeah, right? Got it. It's a tiny little sliver. Yeah. Even though it's billions and billions of dollars, right? Nickels and dimes in the government turns out to be yeah. um, billions and billions of dollars. But it works. And actually, it, it punches above its weight in an investment. You know, if you look at it as a taxpayer investment, a lot of people are complaining about the, the Inflation Reduction Act or the, the student loan yeah. um, cancellation uh, for, you know, different income levels and stuff like that. Um, some people are having trouble um, uh, quantifying the return on investment. On this, it's a pretty simple return on investment calculation, just like you would do any investment calculation, which exactly. is you invested one and you get 10 on the other side after creating 1,000 jobs that didn't exist before. That's a good investment. Damn right. We're talking with Javier Sade, an old friend of the show, an old friend of mine. He is the managing partner of Impact Master Holdings and also a partner of Fenway Summer Ventures. We're going to continue our conversation about the investment community in Washington, D.C., the federal government and how it plays together, and a whole bunch of other stuff after this. Stay tuned. So um, let's talk about the financing community and financing environment in the D.C. marketplace. You're a partner at a venture fund called Fenway Summers, uh, managing director of Impact Master Holdings. What's your sense of the D.C. marketplace as an arena for venture capital? And before you answer, what I saw COVID kind of hit, maybe you agree or don't, is that it let venture funds that weren't in D.C. invest in D.C. Back in the day, you had to see the executive face-to-face, all that shtick. That seems to have gone away. Is that what you're seeing? There's a there's a little bit of permanence to the dislocation that happened during COVID in how people learn, how people work, how people invest, how people start companies. Um, there's this debate now in the greater the, the future of work world, let's call it, where it's kind of a return to office camp and a work from home camp. And the reality is that you're never going to go back uh, to what it was, and you're also probably never going to be virtual. So I do think that some of the geography-based constructs which usually drove high-risk capital like venture capital and the reason why Silicon Valley became what it became in the 50s, 60s, and fast forward to today, in terms of the just the area, if you take D.C.'s you know, 60-mile radius of D.C., um, it's by far one of the most vibrant uh, regional economies in the country, in the world, you know, with, with a T. Um, Dozens of universities, world-class universities, a people like to call DC a company town. I don't it has an anchor tenant, but it's not a company town, which is a four trillion dollar a year enterprise, um, which hires hundreds of thousands of technical people, science people, I mean, on and on and on. The ecosystem here is amazing. Fenway Summer, which was started by Raj Date. Um, here in D.C., focuses specifically in innovation and financial services. And when he started the firm in uh, 2013, uh, it was kind of relatively close to the financial crisis, and financial services continues to go through a lot of iterations now. Uh, But the thesis of the firm is to invest in financial services, infrastructure, uh, payments, lending, and things like that that actually touch on the business of money. Got it. So where's the firm on crypto? as an investment vehicle, as a new source of capital, of, of whatever? What, where are you guys on that? 
So the firm, and Raj sits on the board of Circle, which is yep. uh, one of the pioneers. It has one of the one of the coins, which is actually um, attached and tethered to the U.S. dollars. Oh, stable coin, is the stable yeah. coin is Thank the biggest you. stable coin here. We're also investors in... Uh, we're investors in several companies which are more infrastructure um, uh, than they are specifically around the currency the assets. Yeah. Well, there's a debate going on right now in D.C. and actually everywhere where is it a commodity, which would involve the CFTC, or is it a security, which involves the SEC? But because it's custody, you know, custody of the coins, it involves banks. So now you have the FDIC, the Fed. Right. It's, right now, there's so much change. And then on, on top of that, take away the cryptocurrencies as a asset or mode of uh, storing value or transferring value. But the guts of it, the blockchain, which um, has all these amazing potential uh, applications, Agreed. people confuse it with Web3. And Web3 is sort of a, the most... The misunderstood. Best, the, 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 the very misunderstood but it's the best personalization of a decentralized right. um, internet. I mean, you spent time with Steve Case at AOL, yeah. and that was a walled garden. Right now, the, the premise of this is actually to have no walls. Exactly right. Um, people sometimes confuse that, too, also with meta, with the metaverse. Yep. I almost said meta with Facebook, and obviously yeah. Mark is, is, uh, is betting the company on this. The metaverse is a little different than Web3, I think, because it's actually a the way in which you consume the internet, instead of you looking at 2D or 3D images on a, on a small screen or a computer screen, you're now potentially going to put on a headset. But essentially, it's the way in which the content is delivered to you. So there's all this confusion, and I think all of this activity is, like anything newish, is very messy. And that's yeah. kind of what we're going through now. But that's, that's where your experience with Raj and its Fenway Summer is so fascinating to me because – Fintech as a label for all that's going on. I think people are sort of forgetting that Fintech at root is actually reconfiguring the basic stuff we do every day with our credit cards, with our bank, with our ATMs and all that, and how we pay people and stuff. So crypto is almost like a smokescreen in some ways to me that is kind of confusing and veiling a basic reconfiguration of what it means to transfer value back and forth to buyer and supplier and all that. And that, that, that uh, what do you call the plumbing, I think, is what that's you it. say. That's where you're probably seeing the most opportunity. I mean, look, if you think about you buying, you know, now you go somewhere and you tap your iPhone on a yeah. thing and walk away, it seems like you paid. But in fact, it's days before of course. that transaction happens. And in between, there's a lot of, uh, let's call it middleware and middle people clipping, which in, which turns into friction, which turns into cost. Yep. So the, the and well that's, said. that's just in payments. Yep. But- you can think about lending too, not to bring up um, one of the SBA's program that happened after I watched the PPP, yeah. which was relief, you know, a trillion dollars of relief to small businesses, payroll uh, protection act uh, program. Um, the way in which the money got to small businesses had a dozen steps in between. Yeah. You put a claim, the bank has to issue a, uh, a credit to the to, to the lending bank, and then you sell it into a bond market. Like, it's actually friction-ridden like crazy. It also, because it was so big, and I think the agency put out in three months what they normally put out in, you know, 50 years. Yeah. So it was very difficult to achieve, but it was a very specific uh, example of 
the complexity that is our financial system. And by the way, it's complex for a reason. Exactly. It's, I keep reminding people that. There's a reason for these guardrails. It's a complex for a reason. I mean, you saw what happened with the meme stocks. Yeah. Uh, BBB, sorry, Bed Bath & Beyond, Beyond is going Beyond, through baby. that yeah. situation uh, right now. I'm all now. in on that, by the way. I'm um, all in. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, none of this is, uh, yeah. none of this is uh, not advice actionable. on, on uh, not actionable. No, re not actionable. no recommendation. Um, but, you know, that was an outlet for for retail investors yeah. who feel the game GameStop. is rich. Yeah. But back to the guardrails, the reason why it's complex, just like healthcare, for example, is complex. And I'm not saying healthcare, our healthcare system is screwed up. Yeah. But the reason why it's so heavily regulated is because it's people's lives. With yeah. the financial system, it's people's money. So, yeah, it's going to be difficult. Now, what fintech broadly defined seeks to do is make it better. Yeah. By reducing friction, by make it faster, make it low, lower cost. More trackable. And, right. And more access to people that don't have access to the financial system. Because right. if you don't have that on-ramp, you're actually excluded from the economy. But that's a different discussion. Yeah. Well, we that that's another show. At some point, we should come back and talk about that. But let's talk about some of the new entrants into capital raising, SPACs. It's not new. I know we could talk about it. It's, it's a new form. Special purpose acquisition companies, huge slew of them came out in the last 36 months. I know you've been involved in a couple of them. I'm involved in a couple of them. Mm -hmm. um, is this another example of an actual good tool that got overused, or do you think there's something inherently challenging about a SPAC? <clears throat> I think the former rather than the latter. Um, yeah. uh, a couple of iterations ago uh, in my career, um, um, I actually was involved in taking a company public by reverse mergering right. it into a shell in Hong Kong. That publicly is a traded shell. Yeah, yeah, publicly traded shell in the in the Hang Seng, and that was in two thousand seven or two thousand eight. Wow. Um, these things have been around for a while. Uh, I think what happened, well, if you fast forward, SPACs have been around for a while with that name, probably yep. a couple decades. I think what happened um, in the last couple of years, and I think the music has pretty much stopped with the capital raising and all this stuff, is that um, there was a lot of liquidity in the market looking for returns um, in uh, what is essentially was not only very high levels of liquidity, but cheap liquidity. And um, SPACs are actually, I think, very good tools, but there has to be the, it's got to be the right business. Right. I think what, what happened, the, the hundreds of SPACs that got raised, some of them should not have gotten raised because, you know, you, the last thing you want is to actually make a bad deal. You basically have a clock for the listeners that don't, um, uh, desperation don't, uh, creeps in. Exactly. Um, they have two years to, to affect the deal, which is really 18 months because the last six months you're doing all the closings right. and things like that. Um, so I do think that it has a place in the in the later stage capital raising. Um, you know, direct listings, IPO, and SPACs are the three ways in which companies yep. go public in yep. the United States. Um, they do have a they do have a place. I do believe. Yeah. Well, it's so. Let's get back to the DC market because I, I like you saw some bad companies get chased by fresh money that was slopping around. But your point about the federal government being a company town, I keep pushing back on that all the time. You look at hospitality, you look at cyber, there's some arenas where this marketplace has vitality. I, I think I heard like 60% of the market cap for the hospitality industry 
is in companies within 100 miles, 60 miles of where we stand right here. And it kind of, I kind of feel like dissed sometimes that people say, oh, you're in D.C., you government guy. It is to me, it's part of our job, and maybe this is where you, as you left government, part of our job to remind people there's some amazing industries right here. There is a, I will rephrase what you just said. Let's do it. It's a brand, the city has a definite branding issue. I concur. Just like in the 70s, New York had a branding issue with the graffiti. And just yeah. like, you know, Silicon Valley in the, let's call it between 15 and 20, got a lot of blowback because it was all a bunch of, you know, 27-year-old bros yeah. that Google went to bus. Stanford. Yeah. You know, exactly. With the Google bus and the mission and kicking people out of uh, right. affordable neighborhoods. So I think that that some of those things, some of those branding or stereotypes happen for a reason. I think it's on it's unfair in DC, but understandable. Well, because again, uh, I think I mentioned it before. This is the capital city of the most powerful nation on earth. Yeah. So of course, what's going to suck the air out of the room is anything that's happening in the halls of political power. Yeah. Um, what what doesn't get talked a lot about, and I think it's a going back to the media discussion we were having, is like it's really boring to most people to hear a policy debate. It's much easier to hear that screwed up on this is free money or you're screwing me or you're forgetting me in Iowa, whatever it is, right? And 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 I think you get all these sound bites which uh which um actually give the city um legs. Uh, or the branding of the city legs to uh, not evolve and change. But I think, you know, the Department of Defense alone, um, DARPA, the kind of money that they spend on research, and I'm not going to say it's efficient. I mean, there's a lot of waste. Um, there's but been the a lot outcomes of waste. are amazing. The outcomes are amazing, starting with how this program is going to drop. One of the ways it's going to drop exactly. is through ones and zeros on the Internet. Yeah. And it wouldn't exist if if it were not for the government doing its job, which yeah. is setting the stage for innovation to happen. Sometimes I blame Saturday Night Live because when they make fun of C-SPAN, you know, three, C-SPAN four with some of those bits, <laughs> it's like it plays completely into yeah. the into the the sort yeah. of the shtick of DC is this boring place. So we ask all of our guests, Javier, uh, at the end of our show, if you rule the world uh, for some period of time, is there something you would start or encourage? Or is there something you might truncate or lessen or both if you were just king of all? I would probably take away iPhones, I, anything that transfers and lets you consume ones and zeros for two weeks. Fascinating. Um, it'll force a withdrawal to most people, including probably you and I. Yep. But we're missing the world for this whole virtual existence that I think is detrimental if we don't control it. So take it away for two weeks. So as a scuba diver, which I'm sure part of the appeal to you is that you are literally off the grid when you're underneath, right? You are right. Scuba so, diving, mountaineering, I do a lot of stuff outside. It's to get away, yes. So there you go. It's Javier Sade, two-week deprogramming from our digital devices. Frankly, brother, I concur. So let's, let's make that happen. How do we make that happen? Well, we'll figure it out off air. But anyway, it's What's Working in Washington. Our guest today has been Javier Sade. An old friend. Brother, it's been great to have you with us. You are my hero. Thank you for having me. The team behind What's Working in Washington is a great group. The executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Online content, Anna DeGraff. And that theme music you enjoy, performed by the Sunbathers. 
You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.